Hi, I'm Melissa Corkum. I blog at our family website, www.thecorkums.com, which we affectionately call The Corkboard. This is the Uncorked Podcast, conversations with everyday extraordinary people, people who have conquered, people making a difference in their worlds, brave and beautiful people, but people who in the end are just like you and me. If there's one thing I've learned over the past 10 years, it's about how much I didn't know that I didn't know and how much I still don't know. Our experiences and adoption and loving kids who have aged out of the foster care system, living in the country but owning a coffee shop in the city, and just traveling internationally have so greatly expanded our horizons and shifted our paradigms. And hopefully we're better humans for it. The one common theme through all of those experiences though was just listening to people's stories. Patty Dye once said, the shortest distance between two people is a story. So pull up a chair and an open mind and meet another one of my everyday extraordinary friends. You are listening to episode 24 of the Uncorked podcast. This week, I'm catching up with fellow blogger and adoptive mom, Lisa Qualls. Many of you know and love her as one thankful mom. We've connected over so many similarities over the years, but she's far more gracious, wise, and compassionate than me. I know you'll love what she has to share. We chatted about a part of her story that she hasn't talked much about, her story as a birth mom, plus the after effects that having a household full of kids can have on even a natural extrovert. And my favorite topic of the Enneagram also slipped in. I promise you, I didn't even prompt her. Just a note, she was so kind enough to move forward with our call despite a cold and a touch of laryngitis. Here's my conversation with Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the Uncorked podcast. I am thrilled that we finally connected and got to do this together. Well, me too. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I don't even remember how I first found your blog. It may have been through even just a Parenting with Connection parent group, or maybe I think we're Mm -hmm. both in a trainer's group or something. And I was late to the game. I think by the time I found you, everyone else had already been reading your blog and uh, you had quite a following and so but at the time there were not very many people that I had connected with who had adopted older children and so we'll get around to that that's kind of jumping ahead but I was just captivated by your story because there just weren't very many other larger families who had done older kid adoptions and so um, there are more and more of us these days than there were five or six or ten years ago but um, I feel like whenever I find someone with those similarities, I am quick to latch on. So, Right, right. We have to kind of stick together and learn from each other. Yeah. So give us a quick introduction. Again, I have a feeling a lot of people that are stumbling upon this probably already know who you are, but just in case, um, tell us kind of who you are and who makes up your family. Okay. So my name is Lisa Qualls, and I write the blog, OneThankfulMom.com. And I started writing it actually almost 12 years ago, so a long, long time ago. I am married to my husband, Russ. We've been married over 33 years. And uh, we met actually as seniors in high school, so that's kind of an interesting story. And we live in North Idaho. We together have 11 children ranging in age from 31 to 11. So we have a 20-year span in our kids. And at home right now, we are getting down to the end in some ways. We have a foster daughter who is 17. She was kind of our surprise foster child. And then we have a daughter at home who's 15, and then our boys are 12 and 11. 
Yeah, that's a big span in a lot of ages and stages. Tell me about your adoption story, because I don't know that I ever went far enough back on your blog, or even if it's there, to kind of know how you guys went from having a bunch of biological kids and then deciding to jump Mm -hmm. into this adoption and foster care arena. Well, we had, yeah, we had seven kids by birth, and it's a funny thing to think about now looking back, but, you know, I was homeschooling, it was very busy, but good. Life felt kind of stable, and our youngest daughter was three, and I remember thinking, what is it that God wants me to do? And I felt like there was something, something more, or in addition, that I was going to be called to, but I didn't know what it was. And then on Valentine's Day, 2006, one of my closest friends, um, Emily, called me to tell me that they had decided to adopt two little boys from Ethiopia. And that, like, cracked my heart open. Like, it just, all of a sudden, I thought, I need to know more. I need to know what this is. I need to know how you do it. And I could not stop thinking about it. And I think it was just God moving on our heart to move us, or my heart at the time, to move us in a new direction in our lives. And we began the process. We didn't begin the process of adopting it, but we began doing some research and thinking about it. And we sponsored a little girl at an orphanage in Ethiopia, an orphanage particularly for children with HIV. And then when we were ready to jump into actually adopting, which, you know, that was a whole deeply spiritual process, a lot of prayer, a lot of talking. But, you know, I felt like, here I am. I'm staying home full time with my kids. I love being a mom. I think I'm a good mom. And we love kids. We love Jesus. We can do this. This is something, you know, bringing children into our family who need a family is something we can do. Yeah. So guys, we um, go ahead. We have kind of a framework mm-hmm. for adoption or what was, how had, was there other ways that adoption had touched your life or when Emily called you, was that kind of like a wide open door to a new frontier? Well, it was definitely a new frontier because I had been familiar with adoption, but from a different side of it. I was also a birth mother, or am also a birth mother, and um, I had had my son when I was a very young teenager, and it was a very sad story, actually, very traumatic for me. I did not want to place him for adoption, and I was put in a situation where the choice was not mine to make. And I had really grieved tremendously through the years, tremendously. And I really, to be honest, to be completely honest, I hated adoption. I could hardly speak the word. I did not have any positive feelings about it. It was such a painful, traumatic thing in my life. So part of how I had gotten to know Emily, well, I'd gotten to know her in a number of ways, but one of my connections with her was her husband is an adoptee, and he had reunited with his birth mom, and I had, you know, watched their story happen, and I felt connected to him through that. And then I had a very huge, surprising reunion with my son when he was only 16, and he found me, and it was you know, I'd always hoped and dreamed he would find me. It was definitely the desire of my heart, but it was way too soon for his parents, and I think in many ways too soon for him in his particular life. And so that was another deep, painful um, 
experience. And because of that, I really needed support. And I joined a group in Colorado. I lived in Colorado at the time called Adoptees in Search. And it was a support group really for the entire triad. And many of the adoptees there were searching, and I made sense of people there. But I also in that time began to connect with sort of the very um, I want to think about how to say this quite right, but I really believed in adoption reform, and I began to connect with those people, but I also connected with sort of the angrier side of adoption. You know, adoptees whose rights had been stripped away, birth mothers who, like me who had been put in horrible situations, and there was a lot of anger that simmered there. So adoption was not a positive thing in my life, and the fact that God almost despite my, despite me, the fact that he redeemed that and eventually made me an adoptive mother, that he even opened my heart to become an adoptive mother, truly is a pretty remarkable thing in my life. I remember um, probably one of my best friends at the time was an adoptee that I met through that group. And I was worried about telling these friends, so many friends that I'd made, that we had decided to adopt. And when I told her, and she really was someone who knew me very, very well, she half-jokingly said, you're crossing over to the dark side. And that was hard. It was hard. It was a real stretch for me to go from being truly a very sad and unhappy birth mother to becoming an adoptive mother. Oh, wow. What did adoption reform look like in the minds of you and that group? What were you hoping would be different? Well, I think, you know, I am not an adoptee, so my understanding is only through what I learned from adoptees in that group, but, you know, they wanted the truth. They wanted to know who they were. They wanted to know their stories. They wanted rights to their birth certificates and answers to their questions and medical information and all of that, and I felt that they were very right to have all of that, and, you know, I I got to know other birth mothers who felt very manipulated and coerced and very, very heartbroken, many, many sad stories. And I just began to feel more and more strongly that, you know, it's a very simplistic idea that Christians have that adoption is the alternative to abortion. That's really not true. Life is the alternative to abortion. And I don't think that people consider very carefully the trauma of separating a mother and her child. Mm -hmm. And they take that far too lightly. And those of us in adoption circles, I think we understand the depths of that trauma. So my heart is that whenever possible, we keep mothers and children together. Yeah, I came to similar conclusions, obviously from slightly different paths than you, but my experience, actually not even as an adoptee, because I feel like that was, I was very fortunate to have a very positive view of my adoption story. And I know that that's not everyone's mm-hmm. story, but from our kids' perspectives, you know, just unpacking all of those layers. And there were these parts where their pain and their past and all the things that they really longed for in their hearts would butt up against these kind of preconceived notions that I had had about adoption or birth mothers or you know, quote unquote, better lives. And that's been, you know, really challenging to kind of look back and and consider and kind of look at all three parts of the triad. 
Yeah, and I would say, you know, a lot of the arguments in my era when adoption of uh, newborns in our country was more prevalent, I think, than it is now, was that I was just too young to raise my son. And the thing about youth is we all overcome it. We all grow older. And I think with enough support, we would have been fine. And I think done well. But for whatever reason that I do not know the answer, I think God had a different plan for me, even though it did involve a lot of suffering, and for my son as well. Yeah, isn't that the tough part? Some of our best lessons in life come through so much pain and suffering. Other parts of your story speak that in loud volumes as well. You know, looking back, thinking about wanting to parent, what would have been the helpful thing that the community could have done to come around you? What kind of supports do you think you would have needed to be a successful parent and not feel so pressured and unsupported to make that adoption plan? Well, I think in my particular story, my parents, really not knowing what to do, took the counsel of their church to heart, and they sent me to live in a foster home. So not only was I a young pregnant teen, but I also became a foster youth. And so in order to keep my son, I would have needed literally a place to live and people to support me emotionally, but also very practically. And my foster mom, she and I are friends to this day, which is really wonderful. And she told me years later that the agency that I was both in foster care through and then also the agency that intended to place my child, that she was told by them that under no circumstances was she allowed to offer me any support or any help. And it grieved her a lot, but she was fairly young. She was a single mom, and she had... You know, what we now probably would understand was not rational, but she had a fear that if she went against the, the what the agency was telling her, which also would have been going against my parents, that she would somehow maybe be breaking the law and her own children would be in jeopardy, that, you know, somehow she could lose her kids by doing this. or You know, she just was afraid. She was yeah. afraid not to obey these instructions. So I really would have needed... You know, very practical support for a time. Going back, I'm just, I'm like mulling over all the things you're telling me, and I'm thinking about the church's role in this and what churches can do now. And what do you see? Have you seen in your experience kind of a shift in the church community towards looking at not just pregnant teenagers, but youth who have made a decision that is, kind of unacceptable by the church body, whatever have you, a shift in how we respond to that, because I feel like that's historically been where the church has really, I think, you know, not stepped up because, you know, we have these youth and they have their decisions and they're not always positive decisions. They're not always the decisions that maybe we would think that God would want, you know, in a perfect scenario for our lives. But then I feel like we heap on shame and other decisions that just compound that one single decision. And so I'm just kind of wondering what your thoughts are on that. Like, what should the church's response be to people who are struggling with how they're walking out their lives? And what can the church do to kind of 
turn that situation around so that you feel supported and loved and accepted rather than shamed and pushed away and coerced? Well, I think it probably requires a church to have an entire mindset of grace and of brokenness and to be a community of people that love the most downhearted and the most lost among us. And that's a whole church culture. And I think there are churches that do a much better job of that than some others do. Our particular church that we're part of now is very, very outreach-oriented, very grace-filled, I think. But we've experienced other churches that are not. And it's, it's a hard question, I think, because, you know, I think we have to be willing to get in to the mess with people, you know, we can't, if we're, if we're going to really love people who are hurting, whether it's young pregnant teens or whoever, our lives will not remain untouched. They just won't. And a lot of us want to be kind of comfortable and loving people who are in a hard place is not comfortable. And, you know, even in our situation, we have a foster daughter that we never really expected to have, but she was in need. And we weren't foster parents yet. We'd been talking about doing it someday. And the someday came because God brought her to our family when he did. And, you know, she's an amazing kid. And she's, she's not pregnant, pregnant teen or anything like that. But she's just a wonderful girl. And, but, you know, fostering adds a whole layer of complication to our lives. You know, all kinds of things that we deal with as foster parents. And I think we just have to be willing to do that. And I know that my experience as a foster youth has very much affected my desire to care for other young women. And, you know, I would be really open someday to fostering a pregnant teen and her child, you know, after the child's born. That's something that I kind of imagine doing someday. I don't know if we'll end up doing that, but it's something I've thought about because um, my experience of people extending grace and love to me over the years has just been so profound. I feel I really am compelled to do the same for other people. I think that's beautiful. And we know a family who has the biggest hearts of anyone I have ever met, and they often do that. And I think that's so beautiful because I think sometimes <clears throat> our first thought is this girl isn't prepared she doesn't, you know, have the resources. And so we jump right to adoption or foster care. And so we swoop in and we take away this baby to a quote unquote better situation. And, mm-hmm. and then she's left. And, you know, what a beautiful picture and what a so much better idea really to scoop them both up. And, mm-hmm. you know, she's not resourced. So how can we help her do that? And, and everyone's willing to take a baby, well, most people are, but not everyone's willing to take yeah. a mom. And I love that just idea, that picture of, you know, this fully encompassing kind of care that helps kind of fight that generational, and we've talked about this before, you know, before this conversation about just this generational place. Some of these pregnant teens were foster or adopted kids themselves, kids from hard places, as we often call them. Mm-hmm just without the tools they needed and just separating, you know, taking away another responsibility from them, you know, taking away a child is not always the solution kind of that I think people think it will be or, or hope that it will be. I think people, you know, we see a problem and we want to solve it and we want to make it clean and we want to make it tidy and we want resolution. And it seems that adoption does that 
But I think we know that adoption brings its own kind of suffering, and it is not neat and tidy. You know, it might appear to be at first for a while from the adoptive family side, but, you know, children and mothers are not meant to be separated. There are times when it has to happen. But for the most part, those times are fairly rare and, um, well, maybe not as rare as we'd like. Foster care has opened my eyes. You know, I work in foster care now, and so I do recognize that there are times, absolutely, that mothers and children do have to be separated. But, you know, as much as possible, I think we want to help families stay intact. Think of the incredible privilege it would be to help a young mother form security for her child. I mean, think how powerful that would be because we know that so many, you know, psychological challenges and emotional and behavioral things happen as a result of attachment that is disrupted and not secure. And so if we can help a young mom and her child form a secure attachment, we're, I mean, maybe this is too grand of a way to think of it, but, but we are actually contributing not only to them, but to our society because where securely attached children are just so much healthier in all ways. Yeah, I just read a great article interview by Bruce Perry. It's not new. I think mm-hmm. it's a couple years old, but um, he's one of my favorite speakers on trauma, and he talks about how even just the feeling of being marginalized changes the way our neurochemistry is. And mm-hmm. I just think of all the different ways that there are to feel marginalized in today's society, You know, whether it be I'm a single pregnant mom, or whether it be I'm a newly adopted kid into a family and I don't get this family's dynamics or just all of those different places where we as individuals can feel like we're not included or we don't belong. And I just think, gosh, so many things, so many behaviors, so many people who are struggling, their story probably is defined by some feeling of marginalization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, And I think even the languaging of, you know, we see this mother with a child as as kind of a problem to solve. Like, I mean, we all have problems to Mm -hmm. solve. And and the fact that we see that as like a bigger problem to solve or more of a crisis or more, I don't know, there's some kind of um, dynamic and mindset there that, you know, I think even drives all of the rest of what we're talking about. If we even shifted that mindset. So it's just another way that sometimes life happens, you know, and... um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a, it's a more obvious situation, but we're all kind of struggling with our own things and no one's calling us out in the same way. You know, we're getting a lot more grace and a lot more compassion in other areas. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, uh, no, I think another reason adoption appeals to the Christian community is that we have compassion, especially on couples who are struggling with infertility. And we see this as a way to solve multiple problems because we care so much for these couples who are suffering and we want them to have children if that's the desire of their heart and we see their sadness and their grief and it seems like, oh, well, here's a problem and here's how we can solve it. But it, you know, as I said earlier, this is, it is just not that simple. It's not a simple solution. And I have great compassion for people who, you know, struggling with infertility, but I think that adopting someone else's child, someone who is pressured. I mean, there are people that will make that choice. But to kind of manipulate a situation, I think, is very, very wrong. 
Yeah. I, I'm i in the field of parent. I think something I realized as I've kind of driven into connected parenting is how many times before I was really looking at the connected parenting principles that I was treating a situation manipulatively, you know, even mm-hmm. in situations when I was just trying to convince a two-year-old to put on shoes and socks. You know, there were so many ways <laughs> that I wanted them to do it my way in my timing. And as my kids have gotten older and I've gotten hopefully a little bit wiser, I've started to recognize this and just see how many parenting tools that are so often used feel that manipulative. And so I guess, you know, you're even further ahead of me in this journey and you have many kids and you've launched some. What do you wish that parents who are maybe new into parenting teenagers parenting people who are starting to make their own decisions, go out in the world, and and could possibly come back and announce, at least for a daughter, you know, hey, I am pregnant. What would you say to parents from your perspective and from the experiences that you've lived? You know, speak to them in terms of what all the things that their heart might be feeling for all the dreams and expectations that maybe they had thought about, you know, moving forward in their daughter's life and then now kind of to have the events turn in a way that maybe weren't expected, probably weren't planned, um, what would you say to them? Well, I think first, in general, when we're talking about parenting teens and young adults, the biggest thing I have had to fight myself is fear hmm. because, you know, I I don't want them to ruin their lives, you know. Right. I, and the thing is, I think we begin, it's very, very easy to begin making decisions based on our fears. And the worst parenting I've ever done has been when I've parented out of fear, for sure. And it can be small things. It can be big things. But I'm learning, having had as many children as I've had, that our children, they are going to make mistakes. They are going to make bad decisions. They And some of them may have far-reaching effects, like a teenage daughter getting pregnant. That's a very... It's a lifetime impact, but there are other decisions they may make as well. And I, I try to remember that who they are at 15, 18, 23 is not who they will be when they're 30, you know, or, you know, we all grow. Life is, is continually moving us forward. And every one of our children, if we are Christians, every one of them, has their own journey with Jesus that they're making. And he's with them, you know, in all of their mistakes for all of our kids. He is always with them. And I think that's where we want to be turning them as much as possible is into deeper closeness in their relationship with God because they're going through a natural process of separating from us. And that's a normal and healthy thing. But their anchor can always be God. And I hope that we model that for them, both in prayer and in the way we live our lives. You know, we can't deprive them of their own journey with Jesus, even if it's painful. And the other thing, (laughs) it is painful. The other thing that I feel very strongly about and have learned is that love is patient. And that does not mean for a day or even for a week. Love sometimes is long suffering. We have to be patient in our love for our kids over the long haul. And some of our kids are just going to struggle a lot more than others. They just are. And we still, we need to patiently love. And again, not let fear 
overtake us or shame our own shameless parents. I mean, if our kids, especially in this world of social media, they may be living their lives in a way that lots and lots and lots of people can see. And you know what? We need to be steadfast in our love of them and really fight the shame that we feel that this might be reflecting upon us. And I will tell you that that is very, very hard for me, but I'm doing it every day. And, you know, it's it's a faith journey, helping our kids grow up to become adults. It really is. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And so sanctifying for us, I think that's the worst part, right, at least for me, is how much I now realize I need to get in, in order in my own life. You know, I've become much more prayerful. Yeah, right. <laughs> for sure. So what, besides prayer, do you have any other practical tips on what have you done or have you just, maybe you're more teachable than me, to kind of get to this place where you can, you know, it, it feels so easy to say sometimes, like we just need to let our kids grow up or we need to be patient with them or we need to be willing to wait years for them to get their frontal lobes fully online and then for them to come alongside and maybe think some of the same way that we're thinking at least a little bit. Are there other things that you've done, either support groups, friends, counselors, therapists, I don't know, um, standing on your head, I don't know, something that helps you, you know, wrap your mind around that concept? Because I'm imagining it can't be as easy as you're making it seem. <laughs> no, it's not easy. Definitely having good friends. I mean, without a doubt, having good friends who share my basic beliefs, who love my kids, and they love me, and they can talk me down when I'm spiraling into that fear mode or the shame. If I'm spiraling down into shame, they, they really help me with that and speak truth to me. And so good friends, absolutely. Good therapists, both for us and for our kids. At different seasons, you know, different kids have seen counselors. And uh, Russ and I have gone to a counselor because, you know, raising really complicated kids is hard on a marriage. And that's another entire podcast, entirely, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, we should. But it puts a unique strain on a marriage, I think. And so I am all for all the support we can get and all the help we can get. I haven't done many support groups, but online, definitely, I've done support groups. Not so many in person, I guess, but online, definitely, we found support. I mean, the Parenting with Connection group, other, even my blog readers are, have become a wonderful community to me and have supported me through some very hard things. And I learn from my readers. They leave comments that are so smart. And I think, wow, why didn't I think of that? But I'm so glad they did. And so, yeah, I learn a lot from other people. Um, just yesterday, I was reading a chapter in a book by Deborah Gray, uh, Nurturing Attachments, and it was on secure attachment in preteens and teens. It's great. What a reminder. I thought, wow, how quickly do I forget these things, you know? And then I read it, and I'm like, yes, yes, this is what I need to remember with my kids. Um, Another interesting thing with having adult children is my adult kids will weigh in with their advice and opinions on things with their younger siblings. And I have some pretty wise kids. I really do. They, They see things happening, and they definitely will address my fears and tell me, Mom, I mean, one of my sons told me once, he said, Mom, when you're scared, you look mad. And you're sounding mad. And I was like, okay, that's insightful because it's so true, you know, that oh, wow. fear it's true comes of our kids out. too, right? Isn't that, isn't that what Dr. Yeah. Chris used to say? Scared what? kids are mad. Sad kids were mad and yes. 
crazy kids were scared or something like that. But there was a breakdown in how they were communicating their feelings, that feelings kind of took on different, you know, masked different things. Right. And I think with me as a mom, when I get scared, I want to control things. Mm -hmm. And that control can come out looking like anger. Yeah. You know, like I want to, I want to rein everything in and see if I can, if I can just fix the environment that somehow I'll change my child's behavior. But we know environment is helpful, but it's our children's hearts and minds that we have to reach. That's what we have to reach. Yeah, no quick fixes. I think controls like my other love language. It's a bad one. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. So you mentioned your blog. How did that get started? And and what? has that kind of turned into for you in terms of your journey? How has that played a part in that support piece for you? Well, I started writing it in June 2006 when we were in the process of adopting our boys and later our daughter and then another daughter. And I had honestly never heard of a blog, but I had a very smart techie son who was, gosh, he was a young teenager at the time, Actually, I was just trying to think about this. I think he was about 11 and a half. That's how young he was. And he said, Mom, you need to write a blog. And that way you won't have to keep sending all these emails to people and answering all the same questions. If you just keep everybody updated with your blog, then, you know, it'll be so much easier. And so that's how my blog started, really just to keep our family and friends informed. And, you know, I realized I really liked writing it. And I kept it going, you know, and and it had a nice little following Back then, I mean, in 2006, there were not nearly as many mommy bloggers and definitely not as many adoption mommy bloggers. There were, it was a much smaller pool back then. Yeah. And um, so I started writing back then. And then as it turned out, our adoption experience was very, very difficult, especially with a couple of our kids who came to us with significant trauma. And so for a long time, I did not really reveal that because I felt like I didn't want to discourage anybody, you know. This was so important to adopt these orphan children and love them and care for them. And I didn't really want people, I mean, what could I say about what was happening in our lives in our home? It just seemed too hard. But when I did finally begin writing more honestly and with more transparency while still trying to balance some privacy for my kids, when I began to write with more authenticity like that, the readers began to come and people began reading and reading and commenting and I began writing more and more and there's a part of me that is very geared toward teaching and so I started wanting to share what we were learning and a lot of those early years of writing is, you know, sharing our story but also sharing things I'm learning and, you know, we had a very unique experience, I think, of working with one of the best adoption trauma attachment specialists in the country with Deborah Gray in Seattle. And then I also had the very wonderful experience of getting to know Dr. Karen Purvis when we were speaking together with Empowered to Connect. And I thought, you know, God has given me these rich, rich opportunities to learn from these incredible women. And not everybody gets that. And so I need to share what I'm learning so that really propelled my blog forward for a long, long time, was just sharing what I was learning. And I continue to love doing that. And actually, I'm trying to get back to that a little bit more again. Yeah, you have you started some Facebook Lives, and 
They're mm-hmm. hugely popular, and I'm a huge fan as well. And I love to be able to see your face and hear your voice, which I know the blogging medium doesn't always give us that. So it's kind of a another way, another dimension to get to know you, and that, that's been super, super fun. I, I like it too, and I like the fact that it's completely unedited, and that's a little bit nerve-wracking, but on the other hand, it just feels so natural to just be myself and talk and and uh, interact with people. When I do longer ones, you know, people will interact and ask questions, and that's really fun too. But, yeah, I'm hoping to use those more for connecting with people and also for some teaching opportunities. Yeah, I think that authenticity, you're right. I have always thought if we don't share what we've gone through and it doesn't help someone else, I feel like that's the one thing that I can feel like on this earth that will redeem that. And I know that God may have much bigger plans that are way outside of what I can see in my small world, small world view here. But that's kind of the one thing, again, I'm back to this control thing that I love so much (laughs) that I feel like I can control a little bit and, and get some control over what I feel like was so out of control for such a long time. Yes. Yes. Me me too. And I think for me, I thought, okay, this is really, really incredibly hard. There was a lot of suffering. And I thought, but if I can share it with other people, if I can teach, if I can, then it's somewhat redeemed. You know, it's useful. Like, I just don't believe that God brings suffering for no, well, not that he necessarily brings it. I don't believe we have suffering in our lives for no purpose. There can be purpose in it. We can grow bitter. We can be angry at the world or we can use it to help other people. And I, I think that's what God has called me to and you to as well. Yeah, well, and you've done such a gracious job at it. I have ne- I have not been always as gracious and probably a little bit more snarky, but I I do appreciate your <laughs> um, your wisdom and, the and, and, again, the grace and the way that you've protected your kids' stories but still been able to, you know, share enough to be authentic. And, and it's, a, it's a fine line. And um, I think you're doing a beautiful job. How have you changed how you talk to other people about adoption like you said I was you know you were afraid to share kind of what the hard was because you know there's that thought like oh gosh you know I want to be a champion for adoption because I believe in it and I believe God's in it but you guys have walked some really tough roads because of your adoption journey and now that you're this far in and kind of looking back what do you say to families that come to you and are starting their foster care or adoption journey? Wow, that is a really big question. It depends a lot on the people and what their motive is for adopting, you know, um, or for fostering in this case too, because I do get a lot of questions about fostering. Depending upon why they want to adopt, I'll direct them in different ways. And I think that one of the most important things I tell people is you need to be in a healthy place in your own life. You need to have the ability to learn new things. Like you are going to have to learn a new way of parenting if you adopt kids from hard places, kids who've had any kind of trauma. You will probably have to learn a completely new way of parenting. It's not going to look like if you've had other children like we did it's probably not going to look much the same. It's going to be different. And I think probably the most, one of the most important things adoptive parents need is to be flexible because our thinking has to be flexible. We have to really shift so many things when we adopt kids from hard places. And I think 
for me too. I don't think I was realistic in term, in thinking about how long the healing process was going to be or what the end result of that might be. You know, I, I felt like we were prepared for heart. I did. You know, we had done the studying. We'd read the books. We'd gone to seminars. I had a background in mental health. I'd even worked in a group home for boys. And um, I felt very prepared. But nothing, I think, could have prepared me for years, years of really deep struggle, deep, deep yeah. struggles with some of our kids. And so I'm pretty honest with people well I'm very honest with people and anybody who knows our story (laughs) knows it's been very very hard but um and sometimes I'll suggest to people that they consider fostering if they don't have a need to grow their own family fostering is incredible it's an incredible experience but you can't go into foster care hoping to adopt you really really can't because statistically most children return to their families and um I think to be really, really good foster parents, we have to want the very best, not only for the children, but for their families as well. So if we really want to serve children, foster care is another way to do that other than adoption. Yeah, and, I, and I'm and i sure that perspective comes back from what, at the beginning of our conversation as someone who is a birth mom. You know, I think you as a foster mom now, you probably have more of a compassion, more of this intentional desire to look at the bigger picture because so often, especially if a family has struggled with infertility, you know, Mm -hmm. we do get horse blinders that, you know, we almost feel like we're rooting for kids to find permanency with adoptive families. And Mm -hmm. that's a big paradigm shift for some people. And And I think such an amazing part of your story is that, you know, not just being able to look back and and be a great advocate for kids in care to stay with their birth families whenever possible, but that you had the teachability to come out of that mindset where you felt like you were angry at adoption, that you didn't love that word, that that experience mm-hmm. was so hurtful for you, and that now you're an adoptive mom, but that you don't have mm-hmm. to kind of be, I think, on one side of or the other, you know, I think we can be open and be caring for kids if that's the case, but also it's so nuanced, you know, like you don't have to be just a birth mom or just an adoptive mom or or an angry one or not angry one or, you know, be an angry one. You you can be a non-angry part of the adoption triad and still recognize all of the loss and trauma. Um, Right. And you can be an adoptive or a birth mom or an adoptee even at peace or even a struggling one and still recognize some of the beauty in all of those things. Right. And I think you're right. It's very nuanced. It's very, I mean, because then I, I kind of had to, I was so focused on always keeping mothers and children together until I ran into foster care. And I still am. That is still my heart's desire. I had to face the reality that that is not always best. And that was a hard thing for me to then have to expand my thinking even further. You know, it's like God never lets me stay where I'm comfortable. He's always like cracking me open to make me learn something new and move me further in this journey. Yeah. And I th- I mean, really the end game, right, is it's just not simple. It's 
you know, you can't really fall on either of these sides. You, you know, each case is so different. And just like parenting, you know, each situation is individual. And there's as much as my engineering brain would love a nice, neat fix and a system to know how to treat all of these cases. It's just not that easy. It's not. Well, I um, I could probably talk to you for hours and forever about all of these things. I keep having all of these questions pop up, um, so we might <laughs> have to do it again. But wrapping up, and we talked a little bit about social media and, and kind of some of the pressures that brings just for parenting and, you know, the lives that our kids can share and how that may or may not reflect back on us as parents. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, in the new year that I've been really passionate about. Actually, even it was, it started with Christmas season because I really struggle with keeping up with all of life and then another season on top of that. Just being, again, and back to the authenticity, being really authentic with what I wasn't doing. And a lot of people, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you get this as well, like, oh, you have a blog and you're doing Facebook Lives and you have this community and this ministry to other families. And, you know, you were a homeschooler for a season and how do you do it all? Uh, and I always tell people, like, these are things that I love to do, and I'm sure there's things that you're prioritizing in your life that I'm certainly not doing. So I'm not doing everything that you're doing and then adding a blog and po- podcast on top of that. Mm-hmm. So I started posting a little bit about what I wasn't doing. So, Lisa, what are you not doing these days? I think in terms of what I'm not doing, I mean, I try to be very intentional with my time and my energy and you know, we, we haven't talked about this, but, um, you know, we lost our daughter, one of our children, three years ago <clears throat> in an accident. And grief has changed me a lot, a lot. And I've become much more introverted than I was before. And I just, I feel like a very different person in some ways. And so it's been, you know, I had probably a year, a year and a half where I said no to everything, which was very unlike me because I had been a pretty extroverted person. And but people gave me a lot of grace because they could, it was obvious why I was saying no to everything. But I began to realize that I've actually changed quite a bit. And so I learned something um, from Michael Hyatt. He has uh, michaelhyatt.com, I'm pretty sure is his website. But he's a productivity writer, speaker kind of guy. And um, one of the things I learned from him is the idea of having front stage days and backstage days. Mm. And that has been a gift to me because a front stage day is a day when you schedule appointments, when you go out and run errands, when you do things that take you away from your work. And I work from home, like you do. <clears throat> and so I I have front stage days, and when, when it is within my power to control it, which is not always, I schedule as much as possible on my front stage days the things that are going to take me away from the house. And then I have other days that are backstage days. And those days I try to schedule as little as possible during the school hours. My kids are in school now. I did homeschool for 23 years, which is kind of crazy to think about, but they're in school now. So on those backstage days, I schedule as little as possible. And I use those days for pretty intense productivity with writing and speaking preparation and now, you know, live videos. All the things I, I have a couple books I'm working on, just all of those things. Those two, I give myself two backstage days a week, and then I have two 
front stage days where I do as much of the out of the house running around kind of stuff that I need to do because, you know, writing takes quiet and concentration for me. It really does. So I can't like sit down and write a book chapter and then hop up and run to the grocery store. It's, it's kind of different. I have to get sort of in that writing space. So my front stage days, <clears throat> that's when I'll meet with friends for coffee or make as many appointments as I can. And then I have Fridays are sort of half and half. I try to block the morning a little bit as backstage, and then from lunchtime on is, is front stage. And then weekends are a whole other thing. I, I don't, I really don't try to do productive, quiet work on the weekends. I use that more for family type time. So in terms of what I'm not doing, I'm not letting my schedule control me. I'm trying to control my schedule as much as possible for peace of mind and productivity. Mm, I love that. I am trying to get better at that, but I, it's, I feel so like swept into this kind of riptide of crazy all the time. And so I find myself mm-hmm. kind of fighting all the time to kind of mm. get to where you are, which is to be more in control of those situations. And, mm-hmm. and I think actually I probably have more control, but I have a lot of trouble saying no. And so I think that's probably, I'm probably creating my own riptide if I'm really honest yeah. with myself. Um, so yeah. I love that. Well, my second wrap up question is what is your life hack? But I feel like, gosh, I have it like front stage days and backstage days. But if you have anything <laughs> else you'd love to impart, I'm all ears because it's really great stuff. <laughs> life hack. Um, in terms of just sort of more lighthearted things, I have really enjoyed starting to use videos by yoga with Adrian on YouTube. I mean, she's famous. So many people have heard of her, but she has all these free yoga videos. And I did uh, 30 days of yoga in the month of January, which was really great. I mean, every single day doing a yoga workout. And some of them were short, some of them were long, but she put up a new one every single day. And, you know, to be able to exercise at home when it was convenient for me and to get better at yoga, which I really had very limited experience with, has been great. I mean, there's just so much available for us that we can do within our schedules. I do um, also go to the gym and I take a class there. But anyhow, but I think Yoga with Adrian is great and great for beginners too. Like if you're just thinking, gosh, I need to get back into shape or I need, you know, it's just a great way to start. So there's my little life hack. Oh, I love that. You're the second podcast guest to mention yoga in a life hack. So you guys are probably on to something. Well, that's excellent. So you mentioned a couple of places that we can find you, your blog. You have a Facebook page that matches the title of your blog, One Thankful Mom, and we'll put links to that on the show notes page. Are there any other places you're hanging out and liking to connect with people right now? Um, you can actually people can find me pretty much anywhere as one thankful mom. So I've got a one thankful mom Facebook page, one thankful mom.com, like you mentioned, and then I'm one thankful mom on Instagram. I personally enjoy the Insta story almost more than really posting the pictures because once again, it's unedited. It's just, it's just my life. And I, maybe I put so much pressure on myself and I feel like if I'm going to put a picture on Instagram, it's got to be good or something but on Insta story it's like snap here I am and I like I like Insta story a lot and so that's another place you can find me I am also on Pinterest I am on Twitter most of my Twitter is just coming from my Facebook page 
So, yeah, and, oh, and I started a YouTube channel. That is brand new. I'm also One Thankful Mom on YouTube, and I'm using it right now just to upload the live videos from Facebook so that they're all in one place and easy for people to find. I've also started a playlist adding some other places where I've been interviewed so that people can see those or hear those. So, anyhow, yeah, YouTube's a brand new thing. If someone wants to be one of my very earliest followers, I would love for them to jump on because it's brand new. Yeah, I'm going to go do that after we hang up for sure. I'm a fan. Good. I just started a YouTube channel too. We're on the same page. And um, yeah. I don't know what possessed me to start it because I certainly don't need one more thing to do. But again, I I like this. I like to talk. I think I like to talk more mm-hmm. than I like to write. And mm-hmm. just, I don't know, it satisfies this place to share with the world and, um, and do it in under 10 minutes. So. Yes, yes. Well, I think you and I have a lot in common, Melissa. I, I bet we are maybe the same on the Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and all of that. I would not oh, be surprised. Are you an Enneagram person? I'm, that's a like little new, bit, yeah. That's like my new yeah, question. What are you? It. What number? <laughs> uh, are you willing I to share? Am, yes. I am a two with a social subtype, if you know what subtypes are. So, okay. and I, Do you know what you are? I am. I'm a one, but I wing a two. So do you do you know okay. if you wing towards a one or towards a three? Mm, you know, we didn't. I, I went and heard Suzanne Stabile speak. I went. Have you do you know who she is? She wrote The Road Back to You with Ian Cron. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. that's been my deepest exposure. I read their book, and then um, I got to go hear her speak with one of my best friends. That was really really fun, and I learned a lot there. And then I've listened to a little bit of podcasts. I'd, I'd actually like to learn more because, as she says, and I think she's right, when we understand the Enneagram, we become more compassionate toward one another. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I couldn't figure out if I was a two or a weird kind of three or what I was. And then I heard a podcast. Actually, I think it was on. It was either on Suzanne Stabile's podcast or Ian Crump. I'm not sure which. And the woman speaking was talking about subtypes and all of a sudden it became clear to me because I'm not really a two like we think of twos like I'm not necessarily the person who's going to love making dinner for everybody that kind of thing although I do like that to some degree but social twos are more concerned with okay and I'm probably not describing this very well because I know so little but social twos are more concerned with the greater good of the community which is what drives people like you and me to want to teach and help and yeah. make a difference. Yeah, because ones are um, like at their at their unhealthy levels are like perfectionists, but like mm-hmm. but their healthier levels they're reformers. Like they're not just perfectionists, like yes. in the sense where they want to you know make sure that the silverware is all stacked the right way and all of those things. But they're they're mm-hmm. looking at like the greater community and looking how can we make it better and right right. But on my bad days, I do care about how the silverware stacks. So that's probably why I'm a one and you're a two. <laughs> probably. probably. <laughs> because you're making dinner for people and I'm stacking silverware. Do <laughs> you know what you are on the Myers-Briggs? Um, I am an ENTJ, I think. Um, okay, I'm an ENFJ. <laughs> yeah, like, and again, but that's probably where I'm the more, like, snarky more direct person and you're probably a little bit you come across a little bit more compassionate than me because you're a feeling mm-hmm. you're thinking. and I'm a very I'm a very left-brained very thinking very math and science oriented person okay and I'm all words I'm married to an engineering professor so he speaks numbers and I speak words so it's 
we are we are very very different people but he's wonderful yeah yeah um i do think i've become more i've moved from more of an extreme e much closer to the center between e and i i'm pretty sure on the enfj and people probably think we're crazy if they're listening to this because they're like i don't know what you're talking about but um i used to be far more extroverted than i am now um me too actually i and I know that I'm still at my core an extrovert because if I, you know, if I get a dinner out with some friends, I just come home very satisfied. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I used to really search for kind of the parties and the big social gatherings, and I used to, like, want to be out of my house a lot. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I jokingly said to someone after we had adopted all of the kids and we had lots of kids at home, I said, I've never felt more like an introvert than I have in the last like year because I feel like yeah. whenever I have a free moment I don't want to talk to anyone I don't want to touch anyone I don't want to see anyone I just want to hide mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. and so yeah and I still and I think some of you know we haven't had the same magnitude of loss that you guys had but we, I certainly think that I probably have diagnosable PTSD from part yeah. of our journey and I think that makes me much more introverted looking than I mm-hmm. ever have been because people relationships are my trigger because I think my PTSD happened in a relationship and so it's been very very kind of unnerving because it's so much not like what my personality has been for my whole life to all of a sudden Mm -hmm. not want to be around people because I feel like I have a very low tolerance um, for people these days probably because Mm -hmm. of all that stuff and so I don't know how long it'll be that way it's been that way longer than I had anticipated it's a, a kind of a weird journey Yes, I understand that. Like it's this part of me that feels like I'm just not myself anymore. But I think I'm becoming, I'm coming to terms with that and finding peace in the fact that it's okay. It's really okay if if maybe I have become, I've been shaped by my experiences and I am becoming a little bit different than who I was. But my friends know me well enough. Like I, I've been in a book group for years and years, and I have a very hard time making me go, making myself go. And this last week, my friend texted me and said, I'm coming to pick you up because she knew that the chances of me going were much lower if I actually had to go out and get in my own car. So oh, that's a sign my of friends, a true, My friends are good. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a sign of a true friend, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And you know what? Once I was out, I did have a good time. I really did. Yeah. I feel like that too, but then I feel like, okay, I'm good now. Like, I, I'm glad I went, but mm-hmm. I think I'm not going to do that for another three months. <laughs> well, and I think that's the relief of of building your week on this model of backstage and front stage days is I'm not expending the energy of being out and about every day. It's like I've got these days that for me now are kind of restorative where I can um, focus in. And, and because my children are at school, it's quiet. It's really incredible. I've never experienced this in my adult mothering life to have time alone like this. And um, it's restorative and I feel like I can think clearly and then that kind of gives me the energy for, okay, now the next day, because I alternate the days. The next day is a front stage day. So I'm going to be out. I'm going to have lunch with someone. I'm going to have this meeting. I'm going to, you know, do all these other things. And so I found a rhythm to it in my own week, and that really helps. Of that. I'm going to think a lot about that in the future. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm, I'm thinking hard about it, and I, I love that. So thanks for sharing that. And um, Yeah. You and I can delve deeper into it if you want to. Yeah, I um so if you're ever on the East Coast and if I'm ever on the West Coast or I mean or northern is it Ida you said Idaho, right? 
I live in North Idaho, yes. Yeah, yeah. it's too bad you don't live right around the corner because that would be really fun. Yeah. <laughs> that would be nice. That would be nice. I do have speaking things that bring me to the East Coast, so you never know. I could, I could be there. Well, if you're ever here, let me know because I will – I'm a driver, so if you're anywhere driving distance, I'll show up. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, speaking is, has given me opportunities to travel all kinds of neat places. I've got something booked for Florida. I've got northern Montana, so all, all different places. Yeah, well, this time of year, keep checking off those Florida boxes because – Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, nicer weather there. Yeah. Well, I have I have a daughter. My one of my daughters is studying abroad in Colombia, South America, and I'm probably going to go visit her. So that will be some serious sunshine. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. I'll live vicariously through you. I'll watch for those Insta stories. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you can watch on my Insta story. Maybe I'll do a live video too. Yeah. All right. Well, enjoy your day off with your kiddos. I know they're all home today, and so thanks for carving out a little bit of quiet time for me. Yeah. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I know that. It will be well-received, I'm sure, by everyone who's listening because you just have so much grace and courage and wisdom and so many things to share. So thanks so much for sharing part of your story that probably doesn't get to be told too much. You're right. Thank you. Thanks for asking the question. I appreciate it. Isn't Lisa awesome? Like I said, she's so much kinder and wiser and thoughtful than me. I don't know that I can time block legit front and backstage days right now, but definitely this summer. What about you? I'll have links to all of the places Lisa is sharing her content and teachings, plus our references to Michael Hyatt and the Enneagram and Yoga with Adrian on the show notes page at www.thecorkums.com. If you enjoyed Lisa, please share this episode with a friend. You can use the hashtag the uncorked podcast so we can pop in to say hi too or leave a review and rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Obviously, I love fives, but honesty and legit feedback are far more important. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at M.A. Corkum, and my YouTube channel that I mentioned is Essentially Connected Parenting. I'll put a link to that as well on the show notes page. I love connecting with you all, hearing your feedback, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And next week, I will be welcoming my first male guest. My husband, Patrick, joins me to chat about our church journeys and why we're exploring smaller organic church options these days. So I hope you come back next week.